This is Homer Bush Jr., and you're listening to the Fries on the Farm podcast. Welcome to episode 211, a bonus episode of Friars on the Farm. Uh, and with me is, uh, is a not doing too well, Roy. Oh, you know, I'm fighting through one today, but you know, everybody has their days. Uh, under under the weather, Roy. Uh, yeah. I, you know, Roy's suffering from a minor headache or a migraine. I, I, I have the utmost sympathy and feeling for you guys that suffer migraines. I mean, I get a small headache. I shut down. I just, I can't do anything. Yeah, this one stuck with me for today's day two. So, you know, oh. staying in the dark and trying to avoid the noisy stuff and all of that. And now here I am with you putting noise in my ears. That's all right, though. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, hey, this is going to be a bonus episode. We uh, I, I ran up to, like Elsinore, like I said, the last episode, um, to, went up and talked to Homer Bush Jr. and the hitting coach, Jed Morris. Um, the funny thing is, like, on the way up there, just got to, you know, I, I busted tail out of work early. Um, I get into Murrieta right before Winchester and it just unloads, like just rain is just gushing down. Um, I took some video. I sent it to Liddy. <laughs> I sent it to Liddy and I'm like, I, I think this is, you know, it's not supposed to be for very long. So I keep driving and, you know, it, it just, it really dumped. I got to Lake Elsinore and it wasn't raining. And then we hang out, show up, grab the guys. Start talking to Homer, and about three minutes in, it's you might be able to hear it on the interview, but it starts raining. And just to be on the safe side, we stopped the interview, grabbed everything, and then went underneath and went underneath the awning. <laughs> yeah, because you've got that metal roof, that like tin yeah. roof. So everything you hear all that pretty loud. I missed you by a day. I was up there yesterday yeah. uh, or on on Saturday, uh, the last home game with the show, their pet yeah. band. Uh, that was the first time Angela had a chance to see the pet band. It adds a, a fun dimension to things. Yeah, well, and I was at the awful game and the awful game. It, it seems like during my interviews, the music was just louder than normal. Um, I listened to it so you can't hear it that much. But like talking to you know, cause we had to. I do the interviews and I'm three feet away from Homer and I'm barely hearing what he has to say. And I'm really having to focus and the music's just blaring. And and when I did the jet interview, I, you know, I just, God bless his heart. I, he, I just felt like he's like, God damn, the music's loud. <laughs> it was awful night. So once the game started going, you know, they, they did the, they did the lineups really bad, both lineups kind of bad. And then during every player introduction, okay. Up to bat. Number uh, number seven, uh, what's this? Um, J- Jed, oh Jed H. I, I can't pronounce that guy's name. You know, it was just, it was awful on purpose. And then the names misspelled up on the board, and the pictures upside down, and all that goofy stuff. I saw a picture where all the fans had paper bags on their heads yeah, that yeah. they drew faces on. So it's fun, you know. That's one of the fun things about minor league baseball. It's like, yes, there's a game going on, and that's exciting, and there's stuff to pay attention to. But outside the lines, there's a lot of fun stuff going on too. And the Storm do a pretty good job with the promotions. Yeah, they do. I mean, you used to go to the nothing game, right? You've been to a couple of nothing games where I've never been to a nothing game. I thought you went. I, I was sad to see that the nothing game went away because I never was able to make it up on I think they were doing it on a Tuesday or something. It just didn't line up for me. But yeah, no player announcements, no music, nothing on this on the boards. They had the old fashioned scoreboard that they would still run, so you knew what the score was. But if you wanted to know what was going on, you needed to have a scorebook with you yeah. to keep up. And I I, I like that kind of angle, the nostalgia of that. Yeah. And you all you hear is 
You hear everyone on the field. You hear the umpire. You hear the crack of the bat really well. You hear the, you know, you hear the pop of the mitt. You hear everything, but you don't know who did it. <laughs> you don't know who did it. I can see how for the 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 casual fan, the average yeah. fan, that's kind of a confusing thing. You don't know really yeah. what's going on and who's doing what. Uh, but for the baseball purists, that's definitely a step back into how things used to be. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, and just to kind of wrap up my night at Elsinore. So I get there, do the interviews, game starts, first at bat, Homer Bush Jr., bunt single. Dude has wheels. Um, it wasn't. It was a pretty good bump, but it wasn't that great of a bump. Like he had to truck and beat it by a half step. Um, I got that in video. I, I put it out there, and then literally, as I'm trying to post that video at the end of that inning, in, into the next inning, he makes a diving grab, a diving catch in center field. I'm like, ah, god dang it! Yeah, him, so the- him, and Dylan Head. You've got two guys out there that can absolutely go get it. Yeah. They can fly on the base paths. They're both aggressive. Uh, they're aggressive in the box. I noticed that when I was at the game that both of those guys, they want to put the bat on the ball yeah. and put the ball in play and and create some ruckus. And it's a lot of fun when you got a couple of guys at the top of the lineup like that. All right. So just to get us going here, we have a triple A strike zone pitch clock um, article from JJ Cooper from Baseball America. Then we'll go into the interviews and uh, that'll be that. Yeah, this is interesting that they're they're tweaking some things for the last month of AAA baseball. Uh, so Major League Baseball laid out further tweaks to the rules for the automated ball strike system and the pitch clock that will go into effect September 5th across AAA baseball. All of these tweaks will be in effect for the final month of the AAA season, but probably as importantly, it will provide data and player coach feedback on how the new tweaks are viewed in advance of the upcoming 2024 season. Um and I, I found some things really interesting about this article. Okay, so yeah. a new way to set the strike zone. The most significant change will be an adjustment to the zone. In AAA, uh, in AAA, half of each series has been balls and strikes called by the ABS system. In the other half of the series, the home plate umpire calls balls and strikes, but hitters and pitchers can challenge a call. If challenged, the ABS system determines if that was a ball or a strike. And the challenge system seems to be the preferred thing for players, coaches, and umpires. Everybody prefers that over just straight telling the umpire if it's a ball or a strike. Yeah. I I love it because I've seen several of those challenges and it's, you know, for the catcher, it's like he taps his head, they stop it. And then 10 seconds later, like it's done. They showed the pitch. Oh, it was a strike. Boom. Same thing with the batter. The batter steps out, taps his head. He wants to challenge a pitch as well. And it's not like review, look at it. Is it a ball or a strike? It is instantaneous. So it's very effective and it keeps the game moving. Not like you have the challenges today. Hell, the challenge that you had yesterday at the Padre game, which was horrendous. He was nowhere near the grass. Oh my um, gosh. But it took, but it took like, you know, a minute and a half, two minutes. It, it just took forever to get that, to get the ruling. So, it, you know, in lieu of getting things right, they're making the game a little bit longer. Right, right. But this ABS system, it really, it barely interrupts the flow of play yeah. at all. They step out, tap Absolutely. the hat, get an answer, and boom, they're back at it. Um, but I have heard that there are some things at the fringes of the strike zone where you get a pitch that'll get called a strike that it's like, did I really deserve that strike? Right. Um, 
So the ABS strike zone has set the upper and lower zones of the strike zone based on percentages of a player's height. That has led to some complaints about the strike zone that didn't always best correspond with the human strike zone for a hitter. Different players have different body types. One six foot two player may be very long legged, while another could have a very long trunk. Under the height based system, they had the exact same strike zone, even if that meant it started below the knee for one batter and ended well above the belt for another. Those strike zones also did not take into account any aspect of a player's batting stance. Now, the ABS system will use the Hawkeye system's visual tracking to set the AAA strike zone. Since the Hawkeye system tracks each player's limbs, the strike zone will now be set individually for each player. The system will set the bottom of the strike zone at a player's knees. For the top of the zone, the strike zone will be set at two baseballs above the midpoint of the measurement of a player's left and right hips. That's aimed to put the top of the zone near the belt line. And so I've seen these like motion tracking software things where they show the stick figure of what the player's doing as they're swinging. And I'm used to seeing this where they have the the suit with little ping pong balls all over the place where they can track where every little spot on somebody's body is. But now with this Hawkeye system, it can actually track the biomechanics of the player in the box while the sensors are, I don't know, 100, 200 feet away and, yeah. you know, different parts of the ballpark. So yeah. it's amazing to me that you can have these sensors that are in real time. It's picking up where the player's knees, hips, you know, all of that to determine just how high that strike zone should be. And which is always kind of, I figured that it would work toward this at some point when the technology yeah. was ready for it. Sounds like now technology is. Have you ever watched one of the games, uh, a Padre game on 3D in the game day? No. So, so you can watch a Padre game. You can watch you can watch any game, uh, obviously, in, in game day. But in the right-hand corner, that says 3D. You can tap on that, and it gives you a 3D version. So it's got to be – that's got to be the information come from Hawkeye because you see them – you see the guy walk around the mound. You see the batter walk out. Like, it's representation of what's actually happening oh, on the field. But it's – You're in, talking about where there's the little line that traces yeah. the path of each – okay, I've seen that, like, after the play – because they'll show like how far the center fielder had to run to get to the ball. And then you're seeing the track of the runner as they're going around the bases and all of that. Is yeah. that what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, yeah. I was thinking like, you're talking like real time. Like I've got the Padres game up over here, uh, which I should not have up because it's not going very well so far. Right. <laughs> I just peeked while you were talking six, one. I don't think we're going to get that fourth win in a row. Um, oh man. But Then you can, you, you know, then in game day, you can go to the pitcher's angle where he's throwing it at, at the at the plate. It's just it's really cool. That is, has got to be what I, what I was trying to say is that has to be the Hawkeye technology that they have at every every ball game, right? Every ballpark. Right. So to finish up this part of the article, the new zone will mean each player's strike zone is uniquely tied to their body and stance rather than a universal formula. The new strike zone is hoped to more closely resemble the strike zone used by human umpires, although the top end is still designed to be lower than the top end of the MLB strike zone. Um, And that's an interesting little part right there. So up until now, the AAA zone has actually been larger than what they're officiating at major league baseball, what they're instructed to officiate at major league baseball. There's like a, a half a ball or a whole balls with at the top of the zone, that guys are getting strikes in triple a that they don't get in the majors, which is rough. Cause you need consistency throughout. And hopefully this will bring consistency throughout triple a and major league baseball. 
Right. So, okay. So if you're Matt Waldron and your fastball, you know, you don't have that 98 mile an hour fastball, you can blow by guys, uh, but you need to be able to locate that fastball at the top of the zone to set up for your breaking pitch, your knuckleball, whatever. But now you're spotting that fastball right where you're used to putting it and you're not getting that strike call anymore. That's got to mess with the guy. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's an adjustment because it's hard enough hitting, uh, you know, major league pitching and all of a sudden you have to kind of adjust your strike zone. Um, I'm excited for it. I think it's going to continue moving the ABS system towards the major leagues. And I, I see this stuff, you know, getting fine-tuned uh, probably next year and maybe even happening in 2000, maybe 2024, but certainly I would think 2025, some version of this is going to go to the major league level. And like I said, I dig the challenge, to challenge a, a strike zone, uh, a pitch. Cause I mean, even with the you know the little square in the box, some of these umpires in the major league level are just wow. I was listening to the game on the way home from LA yesterday, and and uh, I hear I hear Jessica, and that what? Oh, that's a strike. Okay, that's a strike. A very a very you know generous strike zone, uh, where the you know the pitcher can or the batter can go like challenge that, boom, it's a ball. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, and this isn't to demean umpires. You know, I have no, a ton of respect all. for what those guys do. It's such an incredibly difficult thing to be standing behind the catcher and you're supposed to interpret a pitch that's coming in 95, hundred miles an hour with a ton of movement. And you're imagining this three-dimensional prism of a strike zone up right. there. And then you have to interpret where the top and the bottom of the zone are like how, how I'm amazed that they get it right. 90 some percent of the time in the first place. Yeah. And I think 96 is like their average or that's like a really well called game. Right. Now we've got this umpire, what umpire scorecards account. So we can check every day. Oh, Hey, which side did it favor? And where were the worst pitches of the game and all this? And it's amazing the technology that we have at our disposal. So it's nice that baseball is trying to be a little bit proactive about this, um, you know, and bring that technology in to make officiating the game more fair. And yeah. the, so the part about the strike zone being tied to their biomechanics, I've always heard that large, large players get a zone that is small for their body and small players wind up with a zone that is large for their body. Yeah. So like Jose Altuve is five foot seven when he's standing on a, on in spikes right. and his strike zone effectively runs from his knees almost up to his shoulders. When you look at what he really gets called a strike and what's not, you know, and then um, Aaron judge, his strike zone starts like almost at his waist because he's just so dang tall. And that's umpires just aren't used to getting their eyes up to that level. And like, okay, strike zone for this guy is four and a half feet up off the ground because he's nine feet tall. It's, it's (laughs) a little different. And so now if you can tie it to the biomechanics of it now, it's there is no interpretation anymore it's it's being done by this this computer algorithm so as long as the computer is being fair and accurate which the computer is not supposed to have a bias then you know the game should be a a more a fair fairer game a fairer game so also in this uh some changes for the AAA playoffs is the pitch clock tweaks so in addition to the strikes and adjustment there'll be some tweaks to the pitch clock for AAA as well Beginning on Tuesday, the AAA pitch clock will be set at 17 seconds between every pitch. In the past, it has been 14 seconds with no one on base and 19 seconds with a runner on base. In the majors, it's 15 seconds with no one on and 20 seconds with runners on base. The new 17-second rule is in response to feedback from hitters who said the switch between 15 to 20 seconds, depending on base runners, was disruptive to the pre-pitch rhythm. This is an example of a change that couldn't happen without technology. 
Without the pitch comm system that allows catchers and pitchers to communicate without using signs, there would have been more time allowed. There would have been ha- there would have been more time allowed with runners on base to allow teams to run through multiple signs to thwart sign stealing. But the pitch comm now being used nearly universally in the majors and AAA, that's no longer a factor. The two other changes will probably be less noticeable to fans, even players. The maximum number of mound visits in a AAA game will be cut from five to four with an extra mound visit in the ninth inning allowed if a team is, has used up its allotment. This appears to be an effort to cut down on the number of times a catcher thwarts a pitch clock violation by calling for a mound visit <laughs> at the clock t- as the clock ticks to zero. You know, and that's you see that a lot at the major league level. They're like, okay, time. Yeah, he was about ready to call it. He was about ready to get called on a pitch violation, and he called time. That's right, right. Yeah, and so the the time between pitches. So it used to be that they'd have to run through all of these complicated signals and now they're just pushing a button. And so I, I get that it's going to take another moment for the, the pitcher to look the batter over there, the runner, look the runner back to the base or whatever, but it's not five seconds that that adds to each, you know, the process of delivering each pitch. Um, and I can see how as a hitter that would mess up your rhythm. Like, Hey, you're used to getting in the box and being ready 15 seconds. And now, okay, I'm, I've got this rhythm and now I'm in the box and pitcher still has five seconds to do his thing. And I'm just sitting here getting tense. Yeah. You well, know, you see, right. And you see a lot of times when a, a, a batter will get ready and then he's already come set and then you'll, you'll see the umpire bounce. I go like, Hey, 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 Take it easy. You know, you see, right. that, I I thought I saw that yesterday on this weekend when who was at the plate when he had thought he had, I think it was Xander Bogarts, thought the pitcher had come set and he wasn't ready yet. So he tried to call time and the umpire did not give him time. And it was kind of like, well, what, what the hell is going on? Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, there are moments that we've seen where the umpire may be not quite on top of whatever's. Yeah. Go whatever the batter's thinking or whatever yeah. the pitcher's thinking, um, because there is you know, we think that the umpire, the plate umpire's whole job is just calling balls and strikes, but there's a lot more that they're watching, you know, in, in that moment. Um, so it yeah. there have been some weird moments, and I, I hope that we don't wind up seeing any of that in a in a critical moment in a playoff game. Yeah. Um, you know, somebody like trying to call time, they don't get it and then here's strike 3 or somebody called for a violation when it's you know, that uh, that's been that's always been kind of the thing that I've cringed about with this whole pitch clock system is you don't want it to affect a game. You yeah. want it to enforce the guys so they keep their rhythm going. Um and throughout the season when Rob Manfred's been talked to about it, you know, he's kind of he hasn't directly answer the question they're kind of taking a wait and see i have a feeling they're going to put out like a memo to the people who run the clock and also the people uh, you know the umpires like okay we're going to be a little bit more lenient about this stuff about when to start and stop the clock by the way so um not too long ago jay jaffe and emmy emma span were in town for vacation and they just happened to reach out to a handful of us unfortunately you weren't able to make it for uh yeah Go grab a beer with them. Uh, but I met up with them and uh, Jason R.R. Martinez, who runs the roster resource site for Fangraphs, was there. He lives here in San Diego. Yeah, he lives here. Yeah. And he works for a company that does baseball tech related stuff. And one of the things that is like part of his job is running the time clock at the major league games now. Really? And so like half of the time, he's the one up there pushing the button to start and stop the clock. 
And I saw, I was asking him about that. And there's a lot more to it because there's, there's multiple different pitch clock lengths and, and you've got in between innings, in between batters, pitching change, runner on base, no runner on base. Um, but it's all up to the umpire. It's the umpire's discretion as to when to start and stop that clock. So they're always, you know, spinning their little finger to, to start it up. Um, but we've heard from different, like apparently in Philadelphia, the guy running the clock has a trigger finger. Like, and people have complained that, that they don't feel like they have enough time to get in the box and get set. Like I'm used to this rhythm and here I'm in Philadelphia and I'm just starting to look up and it's already at nine seconds. I'm used to looking up when there's like 11, 12 seconds left. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because there's still that human element to it. There always will be. I'm stoked that you got a chance to go do that. I, I like they were all meeting at nine o'clock and we go to bed at like nine 30 because I get up at God awful early. Um, so I'm glad you got to do that. But segue into what we're talking about right now is the end of this article. And it says, and starting September 5th, pitch clock operators will be instructed to start the pitch clock as soon as the pitcher receives a new baseball. In the past, they have been instructed to start the clock when their pitcher has the ball and stands on the mound. Some pitchers had come to realize they could delay the pitch clock start by standing somewhere other than the mound when they got a new baseball. So, so they go for a little walk. They have a conversation right. with themselves. Right. Step out. Okay. Now step up to the mound. Now I'm ready. And now it's time to go. Okay. So we're going to go into the, the interviews here. Homer, Homer Bush Jr. HBJ is such a great kid. Um, Had a great interview. Great talk with him. Uh, he's a big MCU guy, big Marvel guy. Uh, He played, you know, it, it's funny. I, I, I really want to frame this article or this interview on, on, on how you know for the young kids listening to this podcast if you're in high school if you're in little league and you listen to this podcast certainly pay attention to what homer bush jr did when he didn't play the first year his freshman year and what that did is falling in love with the work like dude it takes me like i had to be dragged to the gym even when i was younger like i had to be dragged to the gym or to go to practice or to do anything so he had all this time available and he started to fall in love with the work the tea work, going to the gym, eating healthy. Um, and it and it translated to the field. Like, you know, and that's one of the questions. I'm like, so when did it translate? He's like, well, it didn't translate until I got into Greenville, till at the end of the season. So as you see, this kid got better and better every year going up to the draft and into and into his professional career. And and Jed Morris, Jed Morris, the great thing about Jed was he was drafted the same year a, a Swisher was, uh, Joe Blanton. Um bullpen man bullpen coach oh god i had it all day uh, uh, bull- ben fritz ben fritz yes but ben fritz was like he was like drafted like third or fourth round and you know jed was down here in 36 but oh um, wow okay yeah so he was drafted by the oakland athletics in 2002 yeah. so this is like prime Moneyball. and that's where i asked about it too and we asked about that and uh he, he i you know, he's not going to give us the, the Padres philosophy on hitting or, you know, anything like that. But I did get some really interesting tidbits from him, um, stuff that I think he was able to answer and kind of give us a little insight into what not only the Padres do, but I think what every organization does and wants from their players as they develop. Uh, and I find that very interesting. And then um, we're going to have in the in the show notes, I'm going to have home run camp, a uh, run home camp, which is the camp that he he supports in in Philadelphia in Pennsylvania where he played college, where he managed college ball and spent a large part of his life. So I'm going to have that in the liner notes. He's going to give you the information when we talk to him a little bit here in a second. Uh, you guys enjoy the interviews, have a blast and 
We'll talk to you later. Hey, we're here with, I'm here with Homer Bush Jr. And first thing I want to say is, okay, 1998, I was cooking at the Manchester Grand Hyatt downtown. And they closed my restaurant to have the World, the Yankees had the World Series, right? We got bees here. We got, no, geez, please. (laughs) The Yankees had their World Series party in my restaurant. Now, as a diehard Padre fan, I was just like, ugh. And then I see you get drafted, right. and I'm like, ah, oh, that's Homer, that's Homer, son. <laughs> yeah. It is your job now to redeem yourself for the Padre fans and the Padre organization to bring a World Series to San Diego. Right. I mean, it, it has to be 100%. <laughs> uh, I think that story is one of those kind of cool connections uh, that you have, and to be able to see it kind of come all full circle is is awesome. So uh, it's like been an interesting <laughs> experience, like getting drafted, because it's like you grow up and you're like. I grew up a Yankees fan, yeah. and it's like one day it's like, okay, like I'm not a Yankees fan anymore. Right. Like I'm a Padres fan. Like I'm turning on the Padres when I watch baseball now. Uh, so that's been a, an, an interesting kind of life uh, life change. So. Well, you know, and just kind of personally for me, back then, I, God, you, I hated the Yankees. God, who didn't <laughs> hate the Yankees? A lot of people did. They and, were and, the true evil empire. And now in the past five or six years, even my wife, who grew up a Mets fan in New York, like she's like, it's a hard team to hate. Yeah, I mean, no. you got Judge, you got you know Stan, and and all these guys. That just, but, all right, your dad's really going to hate this. But my wife hates Derek Jeter. Oh, I'm like, gosh, how yeah. can you hate that guy? He's such a class uh-huh. act. Ah, that's what that's what the life of growing up uh, married uh-huh. to a Mets fan. Uh-huh. So first, I want to say, I, you know, just congratulations on this year's draft for Grand Canyon University. Mm-hmm. I mean, you guys were really a, a breakout university and program in the draft and you were part of that yeah for sure i think uh one of the big things for me is like when i get somewhere it's like i want to leave it better than i found it and so it's like when i committed to grand canyon it's like we hadn't even made a regional yet and we would have a couple guys drafted every year but like our name wasn't really on the map so to kind of be able to leave my footprint on the program was big to me it's like we leave and it's like we had three guys get popped in the top five rounds which had never been done before so that was awesome, and it's like I hope that like in the future that's something that continues to happen. But just to see kind of like whenever I first got to Grand Canyon and like we'd be on the road and like we all have on our, our backpacks and stuff, and we go to the airport, people are like, what's Grand Canyon University? Like <laughs> the amount of times people ask me if Grand Canyon University was actually in the Grand Canyon was like abhorrent. So like now it's like to walk around the airport and have people know like – at least know what Grand Canyon University is is cool. So. Dude, and, and purple's such not a like a college, you know, it's red, black, or yeah. green. Like yeah, there's purple color, which is I think it's a really nice color, but um it is it's like you're like Grand Canyon are you guys engineering students? Exactly. Are you guys where are you guys the from? Online schooling is big, so like you get a ton of I didn't even know that they had an in person uh, an in person campus, you know. So uh Starting to get some more recognition for that, and like the the all the on person on ground stuff, and our stadium yeah. and the fans and everything are like top notch. And so the fact that they're starting to get a little bit more spotlight is cool. So your major in in college was sports, sports management. management. Yeah. Did you have an idea that you were going to get drafted, yeah, or were you yeah, like just well, in case I might well, want to be an agent? Or well, that's part of it. Is I was like, all right, let me like hear what the easiest thing we got going is. <laughs> They said sports management. I said, sign me up. So, like, if you ask the majority of the team, it's going to be sports management or something relating to that. But for me, it's like 
it's like the fact that I was already kind of in that space, like being yeah. an athlete, I was like, all right, this is probably going to be easy for me to pick up and then easy for me to like, if I want to continue, cause like no matter how good my career goes, like I can't play till I'm 80, you know? <laughs> so it's like, there's going to have to be a point where I make that transition into regular life. And I feel like kind of having that background will make it a little bit easier. So now we're going to go off on a total tangent here. I didn't have this on my, uh, on my question list, but are you going to go back and get your degree? Uh, eventually. Yeah, it's funny. My <laughs> academic guy. this baseball thing works out yeah, first, yeah. My academic guy just texted me the other day and he's like, you want to start up classes? Because they actually just got back on campus. So right, I got right. been seeing all my guys on social media get back on campus. I was like, maybe in a couple of years. Right. So I only have a couple of classes left. So, okay. uh, and I, as I mentioned, the online, uh, program is really good. So I'll be, be able to knock it out online over the next year or two. So that's, that's, <laughs> That's so rad. Uh, yeah, I work for university. We're about three weeks away. We're in a quarter system. We're about three weeks okay. away from, from students getting on campus in the insanity of a whole new school year um, starting. So, hey, your freshman year, you said you, you fell in love with the details and the work yeah. uh, in, in baseball. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, I feel like so my freshman year, I only got four at-bats, six at-bats, something like that. Uh and so kind of when that happens and you're not playing every day, you have to find other ways to kind of get better. And so that's when, like, I kind of realized, like, I really had the epiphany. Like, that was, like, big for me, like, growth-wise. Because, like, a lot of times growing up, it's like you'd have your parents and maybe coaches trying to pull some of this work ethic and stuff out of you. And it's hard to really, like, like grab it out of you. Like, the, the motivation has to be internal. Yeah. And so yeah. that's kind of my freshman year when I started to deal with, like, a really big block of adversity after. So I got done with high school and, like, that was a bit of a funky experience. I got to college. I was like, all right, this is going to be a fresh start. And then I didn't play again. And I was like, all right, like this is like when I really need to start. Like if I want to take this thing serious, like I'm going to need to take things serious. And so I was able to fall in love with the weight room and uh, just doing stuff like when I'm taking live reps uh, before batting practice, I'm not even I'm not on the lineup card. Like they legally can't put me in the game. Right. Like, <laughs> I can go run into the wall. I can go dive and do yeah. all this while I'm fielding, you know, not in the game and just stuff like that, that kind of helped me uh, grow as a player, even though I wasn't getting the opportunity to play every day. You know, and that's funny because, like, falling, falling in love with the work, it's work. Like, mm -hmm. it like is, being yeah. disciplined and hitting the gym mm -hmm. and having diet and studying the game. Yep. If you're not playing, you might as well be watching and learning. Mm -hmm. And and that's kind of leads into my next question. So how does that kind of translate to performance on the field? Yeah, I feel like just kind of knowing that you've put in the work and then having the understanding of a lot of kind of the details that go into being successful makes it easier on like a bigger picture level because you're not as focused. Like when you're in the game, you're like, all right, I understand that I've put in the work and you're kind of able to call back onto a lot of that work that you've put in uh, kind of when the lights aren't on. Yeah. What, what is it that Jerry Cheetah said? Hard work beats talent. When talent, when talent doesn't, doesn't work, work hard. hard. Yeah. And so that's <laughs> one of the things where it's like, the way that my career's kind of progressed, it's been like a bunch of different aspects just like coming together at one time. And so that was kind of the beginning of it where it's like, all right, the athleticism is meeting the hard work. And then like as I'm continuing to break, to progress, it's like the athleticism is meeting the hard work, which is meeting the mental side of the game. And, you know, as I'm kind of creating a process and all these different pieces are adding up to like one big total package. And then yeah. it's like one of those things where it's like I kind of just burst onto the scene and people are like, where did this come from? It's like, it's always oh, been in right. development. Right. But, <laughs> Just so. needed your shot. And we're going to get into that too, because it, it, 
your, your career kind of progresses. So after your freshman year, you went to the Abbey League. Yes. And played in Greenville. Yep. Quick little another little side note for me. A few years back, my wife and I, you know, we're looking, can't retire in San Diego. It's just not in our cards. And we were looking to be a host family well before they had the reorg. And, uh, you know, Major League Baseball paying for your guys' housing. We wanted to be a host family. So we were going to tour the Appy League. Okay. So it was going to be Greenville Reds. We were going to go up to Elizabethan Twins. Uh, We were going to go out to Johnson City just to kind of spend the night, catch a game, and kind of check the city out. Like three days, like three or four days before we were getting ready to go and really kind of set our, our plan in motion, I called, hey, how, how's, your, uh, how's your, your host family situation? They're like, what's the host family? Oh, you guys don't have host family? No, our players stay in hotels or whatever. I'm like, oh, honey, we got to go do something else. <laughs> yeah. We ended up going somewhere else in, in Tennessee. And, um, okay, yeah. So in Greenville, how did that come about? How did you get a chance to play in the Apple League? Yeah, it was honestly kind of random. I was set up to play in another league uh, kind of throughout the fall, and then the Abbey League kind of came on the scene. And I had some connections with, like, MLB and Team USA and kind of playing with uh, a lot of the breakthrough series and stuff throughout high school and through my dad. And, like, it was end of the fall, and they are like, hey, we got this new summer league. Like, it's supposed to be, like, up and coming, like, yeah. first year, like, running through, like, MLB affiliates and stuff like that, like, want to come like check it out and me and a couple of, of, of uh, my other teammates were like sure and so like it was kind of like just completely random just one of those things that just popped up so dude and you raked in that league too yeah, yeah. and that's kind of where all that rubber kind of hits the road all that hard work and all that preparation kind of starts to hit the road mm-hmm. and, and you put your name on the map there yeah that was that was huge for me because that's what kind of got me launched into my sophomore year and I got invited out to the Cape Cod after my summer there so okay so as a flyboy you're also a part of the community yes and and what were some of the some kind of the community actions you guys did there for uh, helping out the community yeah i think just kind of being able to, to work with a lot of younger kids i know specifically um during the all-star game we had kind of like a camp uh deal before where it's like you had a ton of other kids ton of younger kids out there just working out and taking them through drills and stuff like that and i think just kind of being a part of a small community like that was just awesome and just kind of being on the team just kind of provided something that was big because it's like I, I've grown up in Dallas and like now I live in Scottsdale and so it's like I've only been from like big cities so to go out to Greenville Tennessee and it's like the Flyboys are like a pretty big thing so yeah uh the fact that they almost lost their affiliate and like I said it's a the Flyboys are a pretty big thing like there's not a ton to do in Greenville so it's like you know baseball and everything is like big so the fact that I was kind of able to provide entertainment and kind of be an escape for people uh, to kind of come out and watch baseball and just kind of compete for them uh, was super huge for me and just kind of impacting the environment or the uh, community in that way. You know, that's kind of that's interesting because that was the first year, that was the inaugural season, right? Yeah. Of the Partner League. Yes. How, so how was the turnout? Was there a good turnout? I mean, like we were we talked about it on the podcast is like. These small towns that they depend on an affiliate yes, for not only do, an yeah. economy but for entertainment, and I was wondering if if the the turnout in the community was you know just as much as they were when they, when it was an affiliate. Yeah, there there definitely was. There was a ton of love and support for us. Uh, I know that the July Fourth game was the first time I had played in front of forty five hundred five thousand people. Like they packed that place out whenever we made it to the championship game. They packed that place out. So to kind of be able to hopefully it doesn't start raining too bad I, for the equipment. Right. <laughs> if uh, not, we'll run over there real yeah. quick. Yeah, but uh, 
they definitely they were definitely showing a ton of love, uh, which was super exciting for for a small town like that. Uh, we got we got. <laughs> All right, three, two, one. Well, hey, we're back here. We just got hit by a little bit of rain, so we had to, we had to duck for cover. So you're talking about the Greenville and, and how the part of the community, the, the team was. You go into your sophomore year, and you it, – it's it, – it just it, – it really – well, first things first. How did playing in Greenville help you develop? How did, oh, uh, just kind of getting the opportunity to play every day. Like I mentioned uh, – how we just talked about kind of working when the lights aren't on. That was my first opportunity to do work while the lights were on. So kind of getting those game reps and that opportunity to take what I had done in practice and kind of put it into motion was yeah. big for me. And so that was my first opportunity to really play every day, like consistently. It's like, all right, whether or not I go 0 for 4, I go 4 for 4, like I'm going to check the lineup card the next day and like, I'm going to be in there. So yeah. it, it gave me the opportunity to fail a little bit and succeed and kind of deal with some of the ups and downs and stuff like that. So that was huge. Okay, so all that preparation work, playing in Greenville, you break into your sophomore season and you and you break out. It's a breakout season. At that point, did you feel like you could play? Did you start to feel like you could play at a higher level? Yeah, 100%. Uh, I feel like when you get into your first full college season, like you kind of understand the grind is – a little bit different. I know for me personally, it was different than anything I kind of dealt with because, I mean, you're dealing with school and you're dealing with the season and this and that. And so I feel like as I got later, I feel like as I got later into the season, um, I actually started to kind of fail a little bit and, I'd, and I wasn't like fully sure what to do. Right. And uh, so like I knew that there was a lot left in the tank, uh, which was like, it's weird because, like, it's exciting, but, like, it's frustrating because, right. like, you're not doing as well as you want to. Yeah. But, like, you know there's a lot more room for growth. So, yeah. so I, I played a little bit of rec ball, and we practiced three days a week. Yeah. Soft toss, long toss, uh-huh. tee work, and then batting practice. And when I would play on the weekends, I didn't hit the ball 500 yards, you know, right. or I'd go three for three. I'd be like, well, what? Uh-huh. I did all this work. That's not how baseball works. Yeah, you know, it's no, such a fail-based game. It is, yeah. So, so at this time, did you, you know, did it, did that make you feel like you wanted to work even harder? Did you even work harder? Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. I feel like kind of seeing that initial success and like seeing what success that lent itself to, uh, and then seeing that you have so much more in the yeah. tank makes you say like, all right, like, it, like getting that little taste of success off rip. It's just like a little appetizer. Like it makes you really want more. Right. Like you're like, wow, like, like that was so fun. And like, I want that and I don't yeah. want the failures. Like that makes you want to kind of push a little bit harder. Uh, and so kind of going through that uh, throughout my kind of freshman going into the sophomore year summer and then my, my sophomore year kind of made my junior year just like a lot. Like you just want it even more. So you feel like you were starting to get a little interest from teams after that breakout sophomore yeah. year? Yeah, yeah, I did. It, it really started after my experience on the Cape Cod was whenever teams started to really kind of reach out to me, uh, which was like a really interesting kind of feeling. That's I'm going right into that next. So after your sophomore year, you went to the Cape. Yes. Ironically enough, just a few weeks back, we made it to uh, Connecticut to see okay. family, yeah. and uh, we drove three hours to cut a game in Hyannis. Okay, yeah, no, Hyannis is, uh, we played there. We played in Connecticut, too, actually, at Dunkin' Donuts Park. I think that's... One of the Red Sox. It, yeah, it's uh, uh, it's 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 um, Dunkin' Donuts is the double A. It's the Yard yeah. Goats. Yes. 
Colorado Rockies double A team. Okay, Rockies, yeah, yeah, we got to play there as well. How did getting into the Cape? Uh, so that really just started throughout the the Appy League. So that was kind of like the main connection that got me there. Luckily, I was lucky enough because the the Cape and summer ball and everything like that, like <laughs> it's tough, like it's rough, like yeah. you can get your contract and your offer pulled, like you can be on half half a season's worth of a contract and like it can get pulled like that. And right. so the fact that I was able to have enough success throughout the Appy League and throughout uh, the college season was huge to kind of even just be able to get the opportunity to, to go there. Because like I said, like, if you struggle a little bit, like, they will find somebody to replace you. It's truly like, it, almost like, you know, like, like the pro, major league. It right, is like almost like pro ball. Like, shoot, you're not playing. Like, we got another dude. Like, we'll just give him your, your contract. So Yeah, the game we wish it was a playoff game. But it was, okay. uh, and I, it was a... Uh, for me, it was a bucket list thing, yeah. and my wife randomly said, "Hey, we got a few days. You know, what do you want to do?" I'm like, "Hell yeah, let's go to Hannes. Yeah. I got the shirt on." Um, there were a lot, and it's a, it's it's a hundred years of college baseball. It's the premier wood bat league. Did you, um, you know, one more time? Did you guys do any things in the community yeah. that you felt you as as a team brought into the community? Yeah, there was a ton, especially in YB. So I kind of mentioned some of the camps that we did in Greenville, but, like, there was a lot more uh, NYD. So it was probably three to four times a week you're out there working a camp with a bunch of little kids and stuff like that, uh, which was awesome. It gave, you know, us an opportunity to kind of impact the community and give back to the community, and we even got paid a little bit for it. So a decent little trade-off. But, uh, no, it was awesome. And, you know, like I mentioned with a lot of these summer leagues, it's like these summer ball teams are such a huge part of the community. Like, you don't realize it – like, I mean, you're you're truly, like, role models to some of these kids. Like, I'm going out to these camps and working with these kids, and they're screaming your name and asking for autographs and pictures and stuff like that. And it really just kind of puts into perspective, like, right. how important, like, what, you, what you're doing is, which actually I felt like made it a lot easier to play because there's times where it's like you go to the ball field and it's like, shoot, you're 0 for 3 or 0 for 4, and you feel bad. But then a little kid's just like, Homer, Homer, like, like right. my ball. And it's like, it makes you realize, like, what I'm doing on the field is obviously you want to produce, but it's like it's a lot bigger than that. Yeah. So to see that, like, you're kind of still able to have an impact on, you know, people like that, uh, you know, whether you're doing good or whether you're doing bad, makes it a lot easier mentally. Dude, and then behind, you know, behind the plate. Yeah. Nothing but scouts. Nothing like, but I scouts, count on, like, yeah. nine radar guns and just yeah. guys with notebooks and you're just every at bat. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, it is. They're, they're out in, in groves, which is crazy, uh, which luckily I feel like you really get used to kind of dealing with it. Like, okay. there comes a point where it's like you forget they're even back there. Right. But uh, every so often you'll you'll glance back there and you'll kind of be like, wow, that's a lot more people than I even, like, remember <laughs> being back there, you know. Especially uh, I put in the All-Star game there and there was – thousand people that we played it at uh i can't remember it's uh it was the one the one team that's kind of off the cape a little bit they have like the gray they're born and then there's it's yeah. uh i want to say at wareham it was okay, at wareham, wareham. okay and it was like under the bleachers like it was kind of low-key <laughs> like like kind of in the dark looking right 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 and there was like a thousand scouts just like blending in there you know, just like all undercover looking almost. So that's fucking rad. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, no, part, no, pardon my language. No, you're good. Uh, okay, so then your junior year, dude, you go supersonic. Yes. All whack for a team outfield, all academic, all American, which is huge. Uh, what you hit three seventy, four seventy eight, five hundred. 
But but really at this time, you really tapped into some power. You had 19 doubles. Yeah. Um, is that something that you want to kind of develop as you move forward into pro ball? Yeah, 100%. Uh, that's super important, I think, just for kind of production in general. And I think it makes it a little, a little bit easier if you can kind of add a little extra power to the game because – it's like, shoot, if you're only hitting singles, it's like you got to go out there and get three, four of them every night. And so much of that is out of your control because it's like, shoot, you can line out three times on three good swings. Yeah. And so I feel like kind of adding the ability to kind of hit for extra bases makes it a little bit easier. It's like, all right, you walk a couple of times, throw a couple extra base hits in there throughout kind of a, a sample size, and it makes it a little bit easier to produce. But uh, at the same time, it's never one of those things that it's like I'm chasing after which, like, I have such an interesting profile because it's, like, my whole life, like, I've been this speed guy. And it's, right. like, I have coaches telling me to hit the ball on the ground and, you know, only put the ball in play. And then you start to get older and people are like, all right, I want you to elevate the ball and lift the ball. But then you still have people telling you to just put the ball on the ground. And so it's, like, you have so many different kind of people coming at you from so many different directions. So I feel like for me it's just, like, how can I naturally just kind of grow into and develop into kind of some of the extra base hit power and stuff like that. And like, as I've gotten older and as I've gotten stronger, it's like, I haven't even really had to try to, it's just like, you get older, the wood gets a little better. The balls get a little harder. (laughs) And like, you just see balls start, you know, leaving and stuff like that. You start playing at different parks that might, the ball might fly better there. And so just naturally it's like, all right, if you just go out there and compete every day, Especially for myself, I know I'm talented enough to where it's like I don't have to try to force any production right. necessarily. Right. Okay, so let's talk draft. Yes. I need to get all these stop and starts in the interview. We're like, yeah. we, I got to get you out of here. You got to be ready for a game. All right, let's talk about the draft. Were there yeah. other offers other than the Padres? Were you talking to other teams? Uh, throughout the process, yes. I would say there's probably at least 10 to 15 teams that like I was talking to, and then there was kind of five teams that like. I was, like, in heavy, like, deep right. talks with. Uh, but the Padres were one that, like, I knew that, like, they've been on me since my sophomore year. I, I know that uh, MLB Pipeline produced an article where they talked about it a little bit. Uh, Will Scott was one of the biggest people I know uh, kind of throughout the process, our area guy uh, in Arizona and kind of on the West Coast. And after my sophomore year, which, like, I kind of had an iffy into the year, he was like, I still want to come out, like, have you come out to this draft camp and, like, see you even though you're not draft eligible, like, we just like you. We just want to see, like, what you have to offer. I did well there. And, like, ever since then, like, they kind of been, like, all over me. Right. And it's funny because, like, going, yeah, which was crazy. And, and going into the draft, like, I had a really, really good relationship with the Padres. But I knew their pick situation was really funky. Right. Because right. I think they only had three picks in the top five rounds. Yeah. And so I was like, wow, like, two picks in the top 96. Like, is there a chance that, like, I even make them make it, you know, here at 96? And so just kind of like going throughout the whole process, like I will like I loved the draft, yeah. uh, kind of what came out uh, afterwards. But there's not like a dollar amount you could pay me to redo the process. Like it was probably the most stressful process of my whole entire life. Genuinely. That's, that's what everyone talks it about. Is, it's it like, was so it's, stressful. It's stressful because you got all these phone calls. You have these yeah. decisions, and I'm sure you're, you know, your advisors there, yeah. your agents there, your dad's going to give you some uh, advice. But you're like. I met some bunch of them, like, ultimately, it's your, it's your call. And you're like, yeah. fuck, damn. You, 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 you know, I'm sure you couldn't help but not look at the roster and go, like, yeah. no, for am sure. I going to take Juan Soto's spot? <laughs> you know, am I going to take Tatis Edison yeah. or, you know, whatever? Yeah, most definitely. And it's, like, going throughout those two days and just being so, like, kind of out of it. Like, I'm not even kidding. The first day of the draft, like, 
there was a point I was like, dude, am I even like getting like I hadn't gotten any calls. Like I wasn't really talking to my advisor. And then like I didn't get popped on the first day and the second day comes around and like they were rattling off names like there's yeah. a pick every minute. And so it's like you have a team come up who you think might take you, but you haven't gotten a call from them yet. Right. So you're like, they must not be taking me. And it's like you're going back and forth with your agent, your advisor. It's funny. I had a, a team call my mom's number. They didn't even have my number. They called my mom's number asking, hey, would you take this amount of money like in the fifth round? And we're like, uh, well, I, I think that like the Padres might be taking me. But like I don't like maybe like I don't really know what's happening, like what's going on. And so like it was just a lot. It was a whirlwind. But to kind of have everything kind of you know come full circle and kind of you know be able to go to the Padres who were the f- first team to kind of be on me was awesome yeah. well and you know it's kind of funny you said your mom because like your mom's on social media and she's all over it like yeah. I went to her to ask questions yeah. like hey what do I what do I need to know about your boy <laughs> um okay so it's draft day yeah what kind you knew you were gonna get drafted it's a good idea you're gonna draft it do you guys have to spread uh so the draft day was like really interesting for me because my uh my dad was out of town. My sister still lives back in Texas. Like, we don't have a ton of family in Arizona. So, like, it was literally just me and my mom. Okay. So, like, we treated it like any other day, dang near, which was crazy. <laughs> like, I remember I actually went to Starbucks the morning before the draft, and, like, I had to get a decaf because I was like, I can't get anything with caffeine because, like, my heart is going to be on, like, oh, a thousand. And so uh, we actually treated everything pretty normal. Whenever I ended up getting popped, like, it was literally – Myself and my mom, like in my living room, yeah. uh, and we're the only two. It's funny because uh, well, your dad's actually, your dad's coaching, right? Yeah, he was coaching. Hawks, right? He's coaching while everything's going on. They're probably mid game, <laughs> and so uh, I actually didn't get a call initially. Uh, whenever I got picked, they went through kind of my advisor and everything like that. And the Padres pick in the fourth round came up, and like I was like, this has to be it, right? And so the draft tracker on the phone actually goes faster than the television right right and so i saw my mom like get a text and pick up her phone and start recording the tv and i was like okay like this has to be right, like, right. she wouldn't just record the tv <laughs> for no reason which she wasn't very low-key about it like i was able to see it uh and then ended up grand king university homer bush jr so that's yeah, how that's, that whole thing kind of went down that's so cool. epic that's epic <laughs> all right so how does how does how does your dad help you kind of prepare for uh for pro ball. Yeah, I mean, he's helped me, I mean, literally since I started playing baseball, just kind of how you have to approach things mentally and the grind of having to play, you know, every day and the ups and downs. And it's like, man, you're playing against competition that's so great. Like, no matter how good you are, like, you're going to get caught. And, like, you're going to get got a lot. Like, that's just the nature of baseball. So it's kind of just him helping me with less so even just, like, the physical part of the game and more so just the mental part of the game and, like, how I have to approach everything to be successful in that way. Right. Okay, one more serious one, and then we'll kind of get on to some fun stuff. You also said you wanted to be, you wanted to use this platform to, you know, to encourage other uh, young black athletes to, to, to play more baseball. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's one of the things that's super uh, important to me growing up, having a dad who uh, was black and played baseball, and then kind of going through a lot of the MLB develops and breakthrough programs and stuff like that, and just seeing how much talent and how much athleticism and how much excitement is really in our community like it would be awesome for me to kind of be able to bring some of that to light I know that baseball is kind of tough because like it's such an expensive sport and it's so hard to get into Uh, travel ball is not cheap it's not at all like shoot you could ask my mom about it. it's not cheap it takes a lot of time 
Uh, and so not everybody has the opportunity to kind of partake in it. And so one of the things for me is just kind of making everything more accessible, uh, you know, as I get older in my career and that's just giving people kind of somebody to look up to. Yeah. Uh, I've mentioned before, like how important representation is. And so it's like, if you can look on TV and it's like, all right, you can see somebody who looks like you playing on TV. Like that kind of gives you like the motivation and kind of gives you like the idea that like, oh, like it's possible. Like there's no reason why that can't be me on the TV, you know? Exactly. Especially with the hard work, like falling in love with the hard work. Yep. It is huge and, and showing other kids that that's possible. Like, yeah. dude, it takes a lot for me to get to the gym. Yeah. You see my wife dragging my ass. She goes uh, swimming. I, I work out while she swims. Yeah. Um, all right, let's have some fun. I, I got to get you out of here, man. Okay, here we go. Some quick hits. Celebrity crush. Oh, gosh. I have, it, <laughs> I have so many. It changes so often depending on, like, what media, like, I consumed. Uh I just watched a Barbie movie recently. I did yeah, the yeah. whole Barbie Oppenheimer thing. So yeah. Margot Robbie is like probably at the top of the list right now. Olivia Rodrigo, uh, she just dropped some new music recently. So like I've kind of been on those two uh, as of recent. All right. Who are your roommates? My roommates right now are Kobe Robinson, uh, Braden Nett, and Brack Eichelberger. Uh, they're my roommates right now. And then Dylan's been my roommate uh, when I was in the ACL and stuff like that. Who cooks? Nobody. <laughs> we all we all DoorDash though. That's for sure, one hundred percent. Oh man. Okay. So, what does purchasing Drake tickets so far in advance oh, tell you about being a pro athlete? It tells me. Well, yeah. It tells me that your schedule, like it, it gets booked out quick. You know. So, like, it's one of those things where, like, I'm devastated to the fact that I'm not going to be able to go, but like, the fact that I'm playing professional baseball yeah. is the reason why I can't go. Like, there's worse reasons <laughs> to have to miss out on something. So what happened, folks, is he, he had tickets to Drake, and then he was in the uh, you know in the complex league yeah. or in the back of the complex in Peoria, and then got called up here to come to uh, to, to uh, El Paso, El Paso, to uh, Lake Elsinore. Yeah. All right, what do you do outside the game to relax? Oh, uh, I just mentioned uh, the Barbie movie in Oppenheimer. I got into movies recently. There's like a long period of time where like I didn't watch any movies, and so uh, that's one of the things that I've been enjoying recently. I actually got like the AMC like. They have like an A-list pass, yep. and so it's like I got, got it. it's like I got into that. So it's like I'm trying like every off day, like all right, let me try to see a new movie if I can. Okay, now your mom said you were into the MCU universe. Yes. Who uh, who are some of your guys and gals? Uh, wait, what, can you repeat that? Well, just who are some of your who who do who are the who in the MCU do you like? Oh, okay, uh, there's a ton. Obviously, like a lot of the basic ones: Iron Man, Spider Man's probably my favorite. All right. uh, Spider-Man, Iron Man, Black Black Panther, everything like that. I, it's funny. I started watching them over the fall. I watched, like, from the beginning to the end. I watched every single one. It took me probably two months. Oh, shit. But that's what kind of got me <laughs> back into uh, into movies. Okay, so the, what Marvel character are you and why? Oh, gosh. Uh, I mean, you got a little I, Superman last night, dude. I, do, I mean, don't believe a, me. You, yeah. went, you went and got I, it. I do like the Spider-Man comp. I feel like I played the wall decently. Uh kind of like on defense so i think maybe like i think that's a, a, a decent comp right there just kind of the athleticism and jumping ability and such all right all right so what's your wild cup song oh uh right now it's crazy in love by beyonce all right during the college season it was flawless by beyonce as you can tell like i did well with the beyonce song yeah and i was like i gotta stick with it like i got i can't switch it out so throughout my career i'll i'll probably just stick with beyonce and just switch it up and just 
So you're works. superstitious. Yes, yes, I am. I am. Where do some of your superstitions? Oh gosh, I have a ton of weird ones. I have the same. I have the same like on deck routine. Uh, whenever I walk up, this is weird. After the game, like when I shower, I don't take my wrist tape off until like after I shower. I, I don't wash my eye black off until like I get back home. And it's literally just like stuff that happened in college where it's like. I didn't wash my eye black off just because I didn't have soap in the locker room. And then I wear it back to my room, and then I hit 370. So now I'm going to keep my eye black right, on right, until right. I get back home. Like, it's just it's weird stuff like that where it's like, all right, if I have success doing something, like, shoot, no matter how weird it is, I'm going to stick with it. All right, so you're from Dallas. You're, from, you're living in Scottsdale. Yeah. In and out or five guys? Uh, five guys. That, okay, five guys for sure off of quality. It is a little bit expensive yeah, for my right. liking, so I go to In-N-Out more. Yeah. I do. Uh, okay. And I think In-N-Out makes a, a solid a solid product. I'm a, I'm a Whataburger guy. Okay, I was going to say, wait till you get to San Antonio. You'll get Whataburger there. I'm yeah. sure you got in Dallas. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, favorite baseball movie? Oh, gosh. Uh, probably 42. Nice. I think Chadwick Boseman is just awesome. Obviously, talk about the MCU. Uh, Black Panther, I think that he's just really – was really good at, at his job and he's really motivating and stuff like that and i talked about representation and uh that kind of falls under that umbrella as well yeah 42 i remember somebody just got me just just yeah. thinking of that and just i don't know if i could do it i mean yeah. i don't that's why the one thing about jackie was is, is he wasn't the best player in the right. league leagues he wasn't but he had the temperament right and the talent was there to go through that it's just it's phenomenal for yeah, for our culture fair. Yeah, 100%. and the reason why he had to go through it is just we can have a whole other podcast series for that. Right. Hey, I really want to thank thank you so much for taking the time, man. Yeah, no, of course, I appreciate it. We hope the best yes. for you. No, I appreciate you, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Yeah, most definitely. Hey, we're here with Jed Morris. He's the hitting coach for the Lake Elsinore Storm. Jed, first thing, you were drafted by the Athletics in 2002, like right in the height of Moneyball. But I guess back then you guys didn't think about it like that, did you? Uh, well, there was some hype then at, at that time because, uh, you know, got to meet Michael Lewis, and he was a, already a best-selling author. So um, to be able to meet him and be around him and his wife, Tabitha Soren, was taking pictures and, and all that kind of – there was a little bit of hype. Did you? Uh, so you're also you're drafted with Swish was there, um, Joe Blanton, John Baker, who just turned out to be this absolute comedian in the baseball world, um, and also Ben Fritz, who's uh, who's in the bullpen coach for the Padres. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was a good group of guys, um, interesting, you know, a lot of good personalities and stuff. Um, so yeah, my first introduction there in Vancouver, Canada playing with a lot of those guys even nelson cruz was on that team okay. uh, in short season so uh you mix all those guys together and yeah we had a lot of talent there was a lot of fun and uh yeah i got to play with fritz like i think ended up being five different seasons in the minor leagues over my career no kidding so do you guys back in the complex do you guys fart around back there together or is it just like you guys have grown up now oh yeah we will i mean it's it's pretty cool just how it all worked out but um yeah we're, we just know each other well so it's good all right, so in the middle, right, right in the really beginning of your minor league career, you diagnosed with leukemia. How, talk about that. I don't even know how to ask the question. Like, like, talk about the diagnosis. Talk about the, the, the treatment. 
Um, yeah, so I was I had gotten my point gotten to a point where I had you know worked my way to double A finally and um, I had spent three years in high A and um, was doing well in double in A and I think I had six home runs. It was sitting like maybe three thirty at the time, so I had finally kind of like reached the point where you know I finally had gotten to my level, uh, probably the peak of my career, and <laughs> and then all of a sudden I uh, I dove. They actually so much so I was a catcher, but they put me in the outfield. So okay. uh, Vaughn Hayes, my manager, had started to move me around, get me in the lineup more, and um, I dove for a ball and bumped into the center fielder and kind of broke a little bone in my hand that was the first bone i'd ever broken in my hand and um sure enough like you know three weeks later i thought i would be recovered and i wasn't fully recovered and so it took another couple weeks and uh, when i came back i was feeling pretty exhausted and i thought i'd kind of kept myself in shape but um even though i got back and was playing again um i started to feel tired and then i got really bad bruises on my body from you know getting hit by a pitch or blocking a baseball catching and um, and then my nose started bleeding, and it was like one of those things that was like, all right, this is starting to be something different than Holy just cow. like, you know, anemia or something like that. So um, I remember we went to, uh, you know, went on the road, and, and the doctor, I finally got seen by a doctor, and he said, told Vaughn to take me out of the lineup. And uh, then the next day I went and got a blood, uh, blood test, and that's when I found out. And they took care of me, flew me closer. My, my parents were living in Georgia at the time, so okay. went to Florida and took care of it. How many years was that fighting that until you – because you made it back to minor league baseball. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, the turnaround wasn't that bad. I didn't end up doing – I did six cycles of chemotherapy, um, and I was supposed to do eight, I think. But, you know, I had gotten to the point where I ended up getting um, – you know, they they wanted to do other things, but uh, I got uh, pneumonia. Okay. And so, you know, while your system is down, you know, pneumonia almost killed me. You know, just as the cancer would have killed me. So they were like, hey, you know what? We'll just kind of take it easy at this point. You're fully, you know, in remission. So we're just going to, like, let this thing go. And, you know, it seems like you're okay. So we'll – and so once I started recovering, I went to extended spring training that next year and um, was able to kind of show up better than they thought I would. I wasn't full strength. But, um, yeah, I think I was a little bit weaker, though. I had some other things happen during extended that yeah. ended up just kind of taking me out the rest of that year. And so – it wasn't until 2008 when I came back in spring training and made my way. I was actually player of the year in high A and then got to catch some really good pitchers while I was there, Trevor Cahill, Brett Anderson, and nice. then I went to double A and backed up kind of the rest of the year, and that was kind of it. Okay, you never make it to the bigs. You, you, you play in indie ball. Then you go coach for Eastern University. How did how did coaching in Pennsylvania? I think they're from Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. How did that come yeah. about? Yeah, well, uh, it's a funny story. Like, Vaughn Hayes, you know, had known me – during the cancer situation and I had, I'd had him one other time in the minor leagues as a manager and so he knew of me and he was actually managing for the Lancaster Barnstormers in Pennsylvania um, so you know that's a good league as far as you know independent goes and I was I didn't feel like I was completely done with my career when I got released and um, Fritz was actually playing for the Barnstormers at the time as well and All right. um, so was Eric Jung uh, who's with us as yeah, well yeah, as an organization you know obviously here last year in Lake E but um, yeah, so I got to go play some more, and I met my wife while I was in um, Pennsylvania, and she had gone to Eastern University when she was a student. And uh, when I was done playing there for the Barnstormers, I wasn't sure my career – I didn't know what was going to happen. Like, I didn't right. know what I was going to do. I was kind of tired of baseball at the time, and 
ready to move on to something else. And uh, so I actually got a job on campus in the mailroom because okay. she knew people that were still on campus. And so I was like, yeah, I'll just do this for a little bit until I figure out what I'm going to do in my life. And then they found out I had played baseball, and they, <laughs> were, they, were, they were looking for a, a baseball coach at the time. And I wasn't sure if that's what I wanted to jump into. I knew there was a lot of time commitment there. And, um, you know, I had never really done it. I had coached some lessons and whatever, but I had never really done it on that level. But, yeah, they uh, heard what I had to say, and I had obviously been in some good programs playing in Nebraska and, you know, playing in the minor leagues for a long time. So I think they just had to take a chance on somebody, and they, they took a chance on somebody who was already on campus. So right. <laughs> that's how it worked you out. Really, like, I worked for a college. Did you actually have to apply for that job and, like, wait for the background check again? And uh, Not quite. I was already <laughs> had – some of the red tape was already taken care of by being on campus. So uh, uh, that, that helped. Okay, so how long did you coach there? Six years. Holy yeah, cow. Six springs. Fantastic. And then you go, then how did it, so from there, you went straight there to working for the Padres? Yeah, yeah. So I think Ben Fritz texted me randomly on, on some day telling me about some player I should recruit because his program had folded in Nebraska somewhere. And I was like, I don't know. I'll, I'll be happy to talk to him. You know, I, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here. You know, me and my wife had been talking about maybe something needed to change. Not a high-paying job at a Division three, Right. So we were just kind of open to different things. And she had grown up in Pennsylvania, but this was the first time she talked about maybe being ready to, you know, be open to whatever else is out there. And so Fritz actually texted me back and said, hey, we need a hitting coach here in Arizona. He was the complex coordinator at the time. Yeah. And uh, I was like, well, don't tell me right now. Uh, my wife might actually be willing to move and like this might actually be the right time. And so he's like, oh, if you're serious, I can, you know, we can get you conversations going with. You know, the farm director. and Yeah. So uh, yeah, that was Sam? Sam Ganey, yeah. yeah. Sam. Yep, and Ben Sestanovich was the assistant. And um, there was other people involved. And, you know, uh, Vinny Lopez was going to be the manager for the rookie ball team. And that's what they were looking for was a hitting coach at that level. And um, when I met him, we kind of hit it off. And it was, he was great. Um, and then uh, there was there was other people. Dave Bingham was already here working for the, for the organization. And uh, he had known me a little bit in Nebraska. And. So there was a lot of things that kind of worked together that, you know, well, felt right and it felt good and it's been good ever so since. So I'm waiting for the part where you say, like, Ben Fritz introduced my wife to me back, you know. <laughs> Not quite, but, I mean, it's there's a lot of great, great stuff that had to happen for, yeah, for us to get back together for sure. Uh, absolutely. Okay, so at the complex level, now we're kind of getting a little bit more in, in the hitting. Tell me what you can. I'm not, like I said before, like I'm not, don't give away the trade secrets, <laughs> but, you know, hitting is hitting. Um, the complex, you're kind of responsible for the foundation of the organization's hitting um, philosophy. What do you guys emphasize at the complex level? Um, well, I think I, in some general statements, I would say like every hitting coach has his own strengths. Um, and I would say our organization as a whole does a good job of like laying some foundational stuff that we need. Um, but obviously we know every hitter is different as well. So, um, you know, I think at that level, you know, you're you're trying to get everybody stronger in the weight room and all that kind of stuff. So you really want to kind of minimize movements and just kind of see what guys can do with with just the very basics of movement. You don't want to have too big of moves. If, you know, if a guy like Samuel Zavala has done really well with a leg kick, you're not going to take that away from a guy. But uh, you, you definitely – you want to see – certain things happen to just create more barrel accuracy you know just to be able to like put the ball in play um we don't want to miss out on a talent that just can't put it in play so 
Um, if that's what it comes down to, we're going to figure out a way to like maybe minimize some movements and, and get that out of them. So here at A-Ball, you know, hitters are still kind of learning who they are at the plate. Do you work to strengthen what they do well, or, or do you kind of try to develop what they need to improve on? Yeah, I think it's definitely a combination of both. We definitely don't want to lose what they do well. Um, and if somebody does something really well and you, you change that, they kind of lose their identity a little bit, and they might struggle with that. Um, only in some maybe some unique cases where a guy's really fast and he's trying to hit for power and it's not working, you then he might find a new identity and like putting the ball in play and getting on base. Uh, but yeah, I think I think ultimately a player responds whenever he's getting better at on base percentage and you know if he's if he's doing that he knows he'll he'll kind of buy in more to whatever we're trying to do, but. We definitely want to build on whatever they do well already. I get stuck on the I, the new identity. A guy might need to find a new identity. Okay, so how much of what you do is keeping the player focused on the process than the results? Because that's such a failure-based game. And I might be talking out my tail here. I just had to come up with some yeah. questions. You know what I mean? How do you keep them focused while they do all the work, you know, behind the lights? Yeah. And it doesn't really translate to on the field. No, that's a great question. Honestly, like, uh, you know, we talk about so much about mechanics and whatever else, but the mental part of that is like, hey, if you're going to like try to make some adjustments with a guy, he definitely wants to see something happen on the field. And if it's not happening, he's going to get a little worried that it's not going to work out with these changes. So um, that's another battle that we have to fight is that mental battle to go along with it and say, whatever we can do on our end to prove to you that, um, you know, this is working. This is actually going to help you. And that's all part of the early work and the other stuff that we can do in the cage, videos, and on the field that we can, like, if they can show us and they can prove to themselves on the field that this is going to work, then it's just a matter of getting over that mental hump in the game and letting it letting it work there, too. So then, what, so what are some of the technologies you guys use to kind of reinforce, like, hey, the process is the process and it's working? Yeah. Uh, I mean, basic video is, is always a good one. Um, you know, you get to watch the games, you know, from the day before, and yeah. you get to kind of just see, like, an overview of that. And then if you need to give somebody uh, feedback right away, you can just take some video and show them right away while, while you're working with them. And um, that goes a long ways. Um, there's other things, too. I mean, every field now pretty much in minor league baseball has, you know, more extended yeah. video and more extended, like, numbers that they can give you. So... Um, if you're trying to back up that something is working and something's helping, there is more technology nowadays that'll just kind of let the player know that, hey, your bat speed has increased or uh, you're you're moving quicker or whatever it is. Uh, there's things that'll kind of help. So. Yeah, it's funny. I you know I'm in a camera well on occasion and I see a lot of uh, see a lot of the bats in would the, the opposing uh, dugout. They would have that blast on the back of their on, on their back. Yeah, well, when I first started working with the Padres, we used some blast motion and we used some K-Vest and there's some different things that we've used. And, um, you know, some of that can kind of be taken away because of some other technologies that have come out and all that. Um, you know, I think Hawkeye has been used by several organizations. So um, that's something that kind of is able to take the place sometimes of that because it'll give you the information. I remember uh, during during the COVID, uh, the mini camp at Petco, you know, they allowed fans to come sit in the uh, over in the Gallagher Square, and you could see every time they hit the ball, you could see the launch angle, you could see the bat spear, you could see all the information on the big scoreboard. 
Um, what are some of the boxes that players need to check before being ready to move up a level? You know, at the, at the major league level, they say batting average isn't indicative of a player's overall, you know, performance. So what are some of those boxes that you want to see? Uh, I mean, that is a good question, obviously, based on, you know, we just had a guy, Griffin Dorshin, move up. Um, he's going to blow a lot of other guys out of the water as far as bat speed and stuff. But so it's not there's not any particular benchmark, I'd say. Um, it's not like, hey, we're not telling the player, like, if you can just increase this, then you're going to have, you know, success or move up. There's a lot more to it. And baseball is just, you know, one of those sports that, you know, you look at a guy in the big leagues like Erez, who's got some of the least amount of bat speed in the big leagues, but he's got the highest batting average. Yeah. Because his barrel accuracy is so good, he's got such a short a short swing. It's not necessarily the the fastest, but uh, it's so short and so direct that he has a ton of success. And then you got Schwarber on the other side, where he's got absurd amount of bat speed, uh, hitting a ton of home runs, but not necessarily doing a whole lot else right now. Um, which is, you know, he's a good player. I'm not saying he's not, but um, the, you just can't. The same thing with minor right. leaguers. You right. can't say. This is like a benchmark you need to hit. Okay. Um, there's other ways to do it than, you know, that's that's part of the conversation with the player and letting them tell us what they're trying to do and then see how that matches up with how they might be able to make it to the next level. And, and just for a side note, I, just before he came on, Mike Nutter just tweeted, Griffin Dorsing just hit a baseball, the farthest I've ever seen a baseball hit. Yeah, yeah. So that happened just now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's that's one of our joys as a as a minor league hitting coach is that when guys move up and they have success, even if it's the next year or whatever, you know, we have a ton of pride in that. We have a lot of enjoyment in that. Okay, let's take you out the hot seat and let's start talking about some players. Okay, starting with Grand Pauly has absolutely taken off. Yeah, like it's hard to believe that kid was was drafted the thirteenth round. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think us close to him, you know, we can believe it that he's done so well, you know. I, yeah, maybe it's hard to believe now that he's put up the numbers that he was all, all the way in the 13th round. But, um, you know, it's not necessarily like an orthodox style. Like, But what he's been able to do is work his tail off and then get better at almost everything. So, you know, that, that mindset that he has has just been what has made him so good this year. Um, he's put the effort in. He's put the work in the weight room. He's put it on the field and – um, we're just happy that anything that we give him, he runs with and and has ultimately been much better for. Sammy's, you know, talking about Sammy Zavala. Sammy Zavala's yeah. shown a ton of improvement throughout the season. Yeah. Uh, I, I think he led the league in walks uh, and still hitting pretty good with, with that leg kick. What else you got on Sammy? Yeah, Sammy, Sammy's got super talented hands at the plate, um, you know, quick hands. And even though he's a little undersized, you know, he's got such strong hands and quick hands that he can do things that other guys can't. He can. What I was impressed with probably the most was all those walks and taking pitches that were just borderline, uh, maybe down in the zone. He just saw them better than a lot of people because he can wait with his quick hands. Um, so the talent is there. Um, you know, the power is there. The bigger he gets, the more power, but... Um, he's able to hit it at all fields and all that stuff. So he he's definitely a good player. And he plays a little bit of a, like, we've had him on the podcast. He plays a little bit of an edge. He's got a little chip on that shoulder. I see him. He loves competition. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> that makes him special as well. So Homer Bush's calling card is speed. Uh, if he if he could develop some power, I see a superstar in that kid. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, they, I mean, you could 
definitely see that. Uh, the speed is there. Uh, you know, he's got such a good way about him on the field and um, a good mindset. I could definitely see as he, you know, learns how to extend on balls a little bit more. And he's good at putting the ball in play already, so that's a huge thing for a speed guy. So, yeah, you're right. If he adds a little bit more and more power and whatever, I, I could definitely see him taking off. All right, so Nick Boyd's interesting. The UCSB guys, they just they just seem like they come ready to play in the organization. I mean, Castagnon, Cole Cummings, who came through here a couple years back. What do you see in Nick? Uh, Nick is uh, much stronger than you would maybe uh, look at him and say, wow, that, that guy's doing that. You know, like some of the balls he hits uh, to center field and stuff is – He's got a lot of power uh, for his smaller frame. And uh, you know what? He He's one of those guys that is kind of deliberate in how he works. And once he figures it out, I feel like um, he just kind of checks that box off and goes to the next thing. Like he came in and worked on his throwing, and this year it's been much better. So I would imagine that he's just going to learn from this first year um, some of the mistakes that he's made with maybe chasing out of the zone, and he's going to get better. And I think he'll continue to get better as, as he goes through his career. All right, Rossman Verdugo, I think, leads the league in doubles. And that's kind of one of the things I just uh, kind of asked about. He leads the leagues in doubles, but, you know, doesn't have the high high, uh, high batting average. You guys prefer the doubles than the high batting average, do you not? We prefer doubles with on-base percentage, yeah. Right. So it's kind of like uh, <laughs> we're not as worried about the uh, batting average as much as, like, does he have a good plan? Is he able to drive the baseball and is he able to get on base? And um, if he's, you know – chasing everything and happens to run into 30 doubles is different but uh he's had a pretty good idea at the plate and has been pretty disciplined so then you just look at the whole picture and say wow this guy for his age um is definitely on track and doing a good job yeah i i, I can't tell you on tape what what i did at 18 it's not it's <laughs> not for consumption i really want to say th- thank you so much for coming on the podcast no yeah and i appreciate it a lot Chad. yeah thank you Three, two, one. So you, I just found you on Twitter. The other Twitter handle is a is a is a cause is the organization that you're very passionate about. Tell us about that. Um, well, yes, it's tied to that. But uh, Run Home Camps um, is a is a camp that started in Pennsylvania. Uh, Nick Miller started it uh, basically in his farmyard. He built a field and didn't know what he was going to do with it. And he ended up using it for abusing and neglected boys and started this beautiful week-long um, stay-over camp for these kids. And uh, it is just, when I got to end up volunteering for it, I was blown away. And I was very fortunate that he asked me to be VP of the board in 2020 when they became a nonprofit. Um, so he's kind of perfected this thing into being a huge blessing for these kids over a week. And so at this point, we're really kind of trying to spread the word and, and spread the camp around the country. Okay. Um, there's a new one in Oklahoma that started up. Um, we're looking into a spot here in California, and um, we started one in Arizona as well. Um, that one's in December, but usually it takes place in the summer. Okay. And so, yeah, we are uh, just excited however we can to get it out. But runhomecamps.org is the website. Excellent, excellent. And on socials, it's Run, run Home Camp? Run Home Camps, yeah. Okay. Uh, it's on Facebook, and I'm sure there's other things that are on as oh, well. Oh, you guys, so check that out. Uh, I really appreciate taking the time. Yeah, thank you.